It's one of the best introductions I ever got. The best one was a few years ago. The MC didn't show up and had to introduce myself. <laughs> but every time Jacob says, yeah, I was in this market and looked down in a bucket. There was this book. I thought, was it a trash bucket? <laughs> Yesterday it was a wheelbarrow. But anyway, <laughs> it was a wheelbarrow. I've had the privilege, and it's a great privilege, and you have to be 81 years old to have been able to do this, but I've had the privilege of speaking over 139 countries, 27,000 talks to almost, well, a little over 45 million people. I've been in every kind of church in the world, every type of situation, you name it, I've done it. And I was sitting over there thinking, and I just wanted to say this. I have never, ever been invited anywhere, a church or anywhere, than when I come here treated with respect and dignity than here at your church. And that speaks loudly. Speaks loudly of you as a church. It speaks of your staff. And I know it speaks of you, my brother. But I can honestly say, and I think Dottie would hold this to be true, that have, uh, we've never been anywhere treated better. And, I mean, you can't believe what you all do when someone like me comes to your campus. And uh, it just makes me want to give my best all the time. Uh, I'm glad a lot of people don't do what you all do because, man, you give your best all the time, it exhausts you. It, it wear you out as a young kid. Now, today... I'm going to continue the factual part of faith. And I want to hone in on one that I told in every debate I had. It was one of three things if you could refute. If you could show me the evidence in this debate, and I've had 250 debates in universities, show me the evidence for this that it's not true, you won. Period. That's it. I'm silenced. And one of those three things was always the scripture. Are they historically accurate and true? If you can show me the scriptures are not historically accurate, I lost my case. But you have to understand, I tried my best to show that because Jesus was not a part of my future. And I knew I had to refute the scriptures to have a clear conscience and walk away from all these believers. You'll be able to go to the church's website and uh, Calvin, make sure tomorrow I call Kim and we get, get their website here, how to do it. And we can get all my, I'll get all my PowerPoints here. Probably for each one I use, it's at least four to five times more that will be in the website, all documented, everything, and you can have it free. And instead of you having to go to my site, I will send it here and you can go to your church's site, uh, which would even be better. And so you can do that. Because uh, <clears throat> most people don't take notes, especially men. You know why? Most men think they have a photographic mind, but they don't have any film. <laughs> and so I have to make my notes available for men. hold the scriptures in my hand, which for me would be my cell phone, can I hold the scriptures in my hand and say, God has spoken. What I have is what was written down. That's the first question I had to answer. Is what I have, I start with the New Testament, is what I have, what was written down 2,000 years ago, or has it been changed? Like people say, yeah, people came along, what they didn't like, they took out, what they did like, they put in, and it looked like an Etzel. <laughs> Any of you know cars, you know what an Etzel is. Willie does. Second, if I could show that what was written down wasn't true, I had my case won. Because if what was written down wasn't true, I could care less that what I have is what was written down. I might be dumb, but I'm not stupid. Uh, I've got enough sense to have that common conclusion. 
And so I'd like to share with you, I have to be briefly, because Jacob said we have to be out of here by 8.30. And so, (laughs) but we need to be brief because of the time thing. But you'll be able to go get all my PowerPoints. Not the only ones I use here, but three, four times more on each one of my talks. Okay, the issue. Is what we have today the same as written 2,000 years ago? Or has it been changed? Second, is what was written down true? If I could refute either one of those, I had my case one. Whenever you study any document of history, you apply what's called, now it's a long word, but I'll explain it, historiography. All long words, I mean, almost all of them have little meanings. Long words are for frustrated scholars. You apply what's called an historiography to determine the authenticity, reliability, and accuracy of any text of history. Secular, religious, whatever, it's a secular test. As soon as I say the bibliographical test, which is part of it, somebody always asks, see, I knew you'd bring the Bible in. It's bibliographical, like in Spanish, biblioteca, library. A part of any good historiography, which is the principles of determining authenticity, is what's called a bibliographical test. A bibliographical test asks questions of the manuscripts. Now, what is a manuscript? A lot of people say it's the original. No, the original can be a manuscript. A manuscript is a handwritten copy over against a printed copy. In other words, for the introduction of the movable type printing press. So a manuscript is a handwritten copy. And the historiography asks questions about the handwritten copies, because that's how we get what we got today. And there's two reasons they copied them. One, to preserve the original text. Because they're written on papyrus, ancient paper, that after a number of years exposed to the elements and everything, the climate and dryness, dampness, etc., cetera, uh, the sun and all, the papyrus would deteriorate, would kind of rot away. And so they'd want to preserve it. So they would copy what's called the autographer. The original is called the autographer. Autographa is the original. So they would copy the autographer to generation number one. But then here's the problem. Generation number one, after a number of years, could be 50, 80, 100 years or more, would start to deteriorate and rot. So they would then copy, make another copy. Maybe they'd make 50 copies. Second generation manuscript. Then they would start to rot away, so they'd make generation three manuscripts, and maybe they'd make two, three, four, five hundred copies. Because more and more churches were growing, they needed more copies of the scriptures. And so that's why they copied the scriptures. The first question with a bibliographical test is the timeline. You say, what do you mean the timeline? Okay, picture with me. Let's say this is the original. What is the timeline from the original to the closest copy? It might be generation two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or nine, the closest copy. But what is the age difference between the original and the closest copy you have? Because the rule of thumb historically is the closer the copies to the original, the greater the accuracy. Why would that be true? Anyone? Why would that be true? You all know the answer. Less chance of error. Why? Because the closer the copy, the fewer times it's been copied and everything, and the less chance of human error being added to it. So the closer the copies to the original usually indicates the greater the accuracy. And one thing I learned over the years is the more I compare the Bible, gosh, I got chills thinking of this one, more I compare the Bible with any other great literature of history, oh, folks, the more I walk away with a deeper conviction on the scriptures. I've never had that fail whether in the number of manuscripts, the timeline, whatever, I always walked away with a greater respect and appreciation 
for the scriptures. Just a little example. Aristotle. Aristotle wrote the poetics around 343 B.C. The closest copy is 1100 A.D. Everything in between has rotted away or been lost. So that's almost 1,400 years between the original and the closest copy. And hardly anyone ever questions the accuracy of it in the universities. When it comes to scripture, it's almost embarrassing. When it comes to the scriptures, we go back within 50 years. Go to slide 31. We go back within 50 years. On the left, you're right. The New Testament, less than 50 years from the original, and look at the others in history. There's no comparison. This is why I say, you can take 10 of the greatest classical works in history, put them together, and it wouldn't equal the authority and authenticity of the New Testament. I never knew that. I never knew that until I set out to make a joke of it and found out the joke was on me. I was ignorant. I found out that most others were ignorant too then because they didn't know it. And this is why I wrote Evidence Demands a Verdict to document all this. So nobody has to take my word for it. It's all documented. You can check it out for yourself. So time-wise, there's no comparison between the Scripture and any other of the great classical works of history. Then, the second question of the bibliographical test, the first one is, what is the timeline? The second is this, how many manuscripts do you have? Because the rule of thumb is, the more manuscripts you have, the easier it is to recreate the autographer, the original, without error or contradiction. If you have... 30, 40 manuscripts of an historical document, it's very, very difficult to determine if it's really authentic or not, the oldest copy you have. But if you have three, 400, it's quite easy. There's certain principles you take that you can apply to eliminate erroneous and come up with the autographer, the original. And again, making a comparison between just the New Testament, you can throw in the whole Bible if you want, and the other literature of antiquity. With Caesar and the Gallic Wars, only 251 manuscripts survived. Now that's a lot. Of Plato and the tetra- Tetralogies, 211 manuscripts. Tacitus, in his annals on the Roman history, 31 manuscripts survive, and from the original closest copy is 900 years. I've never met a Roman historian that ever knew that, that ever knew that, and puts all that confidence in the, um, the annals by Acidus and the, Tacitus and the um, accuracy of history. Pliny the Elder, 200 manuscripts. Many people consider Thucydides the most accurate and greatest of Greek historians. From the time Thucydides wrote to the closest copy is 1,300 years, and there's only 96 manuscripts. And people don't question their accuracy. When it comes to the New Testament, with manuscripts and scrolls, Very seldom am I surprised in research. But when I researched out this quite a few years ago, it blew my mind. I had no idea. And you know what? I've met maybe one Christian in life who had any idea of it. Just of total biblical scrolls and manuscripts, last exact count was 66,000 462. Do you realize the impact of that? What that says historically? Of one document. Over 66,000 men. Do you know what number two is in all history? 
Can anyone tell me? Somebody knows it because you read my book. Come on. What's the number two author with manuscripts in all of history? Who? Alexander the Great? No, he was a minor in this. Come on, some of you know who it is. The Iliad by who? Homer. How many manuscripts? I used to teach 680. A lot. I used to teach 682. Now I've been able to document right about 1,800 manuscripts. Now, that's number two in all history. Look at the comparison between number one and number two. And Christians go to the university and apologize for the scriptures. Their professors don't even know that. It's like one of the great Greek scholars, Dr. Daniel Wallace, said, Josh, in those manuscripts, we have the exact wording of Jesus. We just need to find them. And it won't be too long. Because of the Internet and new programs that some students devised at um, Cambridge, in a matter of years, somebody's going to be able to print the Gospels with the exact documented words of Jesus. We can do about 96, 98% right now. I never dreamed of that. I never even thought that could be possible in history. But look at the comparison. We don't have all the answers, but we sure have nothing to apologize for. Look at the Bible compared to the average classical work the great works of history. On the left, and this was all statistically worked out, you have the height of all the pages of a classical work stacked up. would be about that high. On the right, you have the Bible. <laughs> when they worked out that, it showed me I couldn't believe it. I had to check it out. God can't do anything more to preserve his scriptures. He's given us such an incredible abundance of evidence. It doesn't mean we have all the answers, but I'll tell you this. For me, the questions have gone like this to about like this in the last 15 years. And I'm still working on this. Before I die, I wanted to get right down to there. But there's no comparison. We now have five thousand eight hundred and thirty-eight Greek manuscripts of just the New Testament. This shows you a comparison of that. That equals 2.6 million pages of Greek manuscripts of just the New Testament. We have the exact words of Jesus. And give the experts time, and using the internet, we will have a book of the Gospels with the exact words of Christ, probably in my lifetime. By the way, y'all, I'm 81. I just wanted to make sure. Every time around Jaffe, he makes sure everybody knows I'm 81. <laughs> I said, Jacob, I could still outrun you. But anyway, <clears throat> I love you, guy. I just, uh, to go through life and have a friend like Jacob is quite a privilege. And you get to have him as your pastor. That's not, that's not fair. It's not fair. Except I have a great pastor, too. We have a great pastor. And <laughs> we have four of them. But one of them is really great. <laughs> Dr. Scott Carroll. You know Scott, Jacob, or you know about him. Dr. Scott Carroll, I put up as one of the top experts in the world on manuscripts and scrolls. He made this. He said, it is true that no biblical discovery has ever undermined our confidence in the Scriptures. Not one. 
and then follow him up with Dr. Daniel Wallace at Dallas Theological Seminary, an incredible Greek scholar. He said, in the last 130 years, there's not been a single manuscript discovery that has produced a new reading for the New Testament that scholars think is authentic. Not a single manuscript. How do they find these manuscripts? Well, one, put up the mask. In Egypt, in the outer cities of Egypt, they would embalm bodies. But you know they didn't do that in inner Egypt? In inner Egypt, they ceremonially buried the bodies. And to do it, they would create a burial mask. This here is a burial mask. It's made out of papyrus, and it's kind of folded together into a mask like paper mache. You can actually take that, cut a little bit, and you can peel the layers off. It's kind of like it's been paper mache, and all that paint on there is um, silver and arsenic paint. So if you see one, don't lick it. <laughs> but that was a full mask put around the body. In there are manuscripts. They would send scavengers out door to door to collect manuscripts. Like when I was a kid, we used to do it for a paper drive, a steel drive to make money for our senior trip. Well, they would send scavenger out to the trash things, everything, to find old discarded, in Egypt, discarded papyri. Why? Because there was so much of it. That's where they discovered papyri. That's where they made it. And so if people wanted a new one, it was so cheap to buy a new New Testament, they'd just throw the old one away. And so they would go out, and they would take those, and then they'd form the burial masks. And I've seen some of these burial masks where you put them into water. I think there's 311 of them in existence now in the world. But with one of them I saw where they put it into water, and then it soaks up, you massage it, and then you can peel the layers off, and you find manuscripts. And in one of them was eight biblical manuscripts in one mask. That was one of many ways that you found it. And then, you've all heard of St. Catherine's Monastery in Mount Sinai. A number of years ago, there's so many different ways that manuscripts are discovered. Here is one of them. Several years ago, at St. Catherine's Monastery, there was a fire in the kitchen. And it burned some of the wall behind the stove. And as they pulled it apart and looked in there, they saw manuscripts, scrolls. And they went and tore the wall apart, found out, and you couldn't actually look and see that it was this way, but I think it was like two and a half feet wide, the wall was. And then they took and hid their manuscripts in there and then sealed it up. And then people forgot what had happened. And when they had the fire, and I forget how many scores of manuscripts, some of the oldest we've ever discovered, in the walls of St. Catherine's Monastery. Who ever dreamed that? Another thing they do, uh, often this would be done by Muslims, and probably Christians did it to Muslim scripture. But Muslims would take scripture, and they would kind of scrape it off and reuse it. It's called a palimpsest, and they would write on top of manuscripts. Well, then they found out with some of the new technology that we now have, you could take with the new technology and you go through the outer layer and you can read the ancient manuscripts. And that's how you come up with so many, one of many ways. They come up with so many manuscripts. Do we have what was written down? Yes. With 66,462 manuscripts, we have it. And thank God for the computer. Thank God for those students that developed some really powerful apps to break it all down. But the second question is this. Okay, we have what was written down. 
I was kind of excited about that. Even though the last thing in my mind was ever coming to Jesus, I was not going to have a Jesus event in my life. But the second question really got to me, is what was written down true? True in this sense. Did Jesus really do that? Did Jesus really say that? Not that what he said was true, but here's the difference now, what I'm getting at. Was it true that he said it? Later, I had to investigate, was what he said true? I first had to to satisfy my mind that it's true that he said it and true that he did it. I want to give you three or four lines of argument, or I like to call it reasoning. And this is a process that I went through. One thing, I give a lot of credence when I study history, which I do all the time, to eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts. To me, it's some of the best reliable evidence historically. Now, don't get me wrong. Some eyewitness accounts can really be wrong. But overall, it's the best, I think, the best historical evidence we have. That in exhibits, physical uh, exhibits, like a document, something like that. They were eyewitness accounts. In 1 John 1, 1, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, another account says, which he heard with our ears, which he have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at, and our hands have handled, we declare unto you. Folks, you can't get closer to historical understanding than that. What our eyes have seen, not somebody else, what our eyes have seen, what our ears have heard, what our hands handled, we declare unto you. In 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. You know, I've heard so many people, especially professors, will say, you know, back then they couldn't discern between tales and truth. They just believed anything that came along. And here, Peter, 2,000 years ago starts out, we did not follow cleverly divide. They knew the difference between tales and truth. They had to because if it wasn't true, they were dying for a lie then because most of them got martyred for it. You think you want to know it's a Bible true? Think back in the first century church. Few of you are ever going to die for your faith. Many of them did. So they really wanted to know, did Jesus do that? Did he say that? And boy, did they want to know, on that third day was the tomb empty. And they would call the apostles to come in, and they said, well, how do you know this is true? And the apostles would say, what our eyes have seen, what our ears have heard, what our hands have handled, we declare unto you. In other words, we, we were eye witnesses. We did not follow cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. He said, we needed to check this out. Did Jesus say that? Did Jesus do that? Because we want to present to you the exact truth of what happened, most excellent Theophilus. They wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. It, that doesn't really prove it's true, but folks, it gives such a high percentage that it probably is. But that's just one of many. Second, this is one of the most important things that I look for historically. Second, they appeal to the knowledge of their listeners. You say, what do you mean they appealed to the knowledge of their listeners. 
Well, listen to Peter. In Acts 2, verse 22, he was speaking to a pretty good-sized group. And they were kind of heckling him. Peter, how do you know that happened? How do you know Jesus said that? And Peter said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you. Whoa. You see what he did? Not just to me, not to my friends, but he throws it all, the whole argument, right back on their lap. Boy, that's dangerous if you're not accurate. When I go into debates, I, I spend more time studying my opponent's position than I ever did studying mine because I know what I believe, I know why I believe it, and I can defend it. But I gotta know why they don't believe it or what they do believe and why that, and can they defend it? And so I spend more time studying them. And one thing I look for, was their message presented back then in the presence of knowledgeable eyewitnesses where if what they were saying was false, it would have been falsified? Well, this is what happened with the New Testament? L listen to this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus and Nazarene, a man attested to you, not just to, to you, by God with miracles and wonders and signs. <laughs> Folks, if they hadn't seen those miracles and wonders and signs, Peter would have been lucky to have gotten out of there alive. Just see how his whole argument, everything about Jesus, he put on the line. He said, we're not the only ones. You saw the miracles. You saw the, you were there when he did that which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Whew. Folks, if they hadn't been presenting truth, Peter would have been destroyed. His whole argument, everything would have been destroyed. And the whole New Testament had that same test. In Acts 1-3, to these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs. Now that phrase in the Greek means overwhelming evidence. For me, it'd be a whole truckload of evidence. By many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Not four days, not four hours. For 40 days. They said, we walked with him. After he'd been crucified, buried, and raised the dead, we walked, we lived with him, we ate with him. We interacted with him for 40 days with many convincing proofs. Now you think these people were lying? They went out and died for it. They went out and died for it. You say, well, Josh, a lot of people die for a lie. Yeah but they always think it was the truth. Are you with me? They, yes, a lot of people have died for a lie, but they always think it was the truth. Now, folks, if what they were saying about Jesus was a lie, they had to know it was a lie. And therefore, you'd have to say, most of these men not only died for a lie, but they knew it was a lie and never once retracted it under some of the greatest torture. If I can't trust them, who in the world can I trust? They signed their testimony in blood. I meet very few people today who have signed their testimony in blood. These men did. A lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was the truth. And if the resurrection was a lie, <laughs> they had to know it. Therefore, they not only died for a lie, but they knew it was a lie. Now, you have to be careful. The extremity of the sacrifice does not confirm the truth of what is said. Because there are people who died for a lie. So because he sacrificed for a lie doesn't mean what they died for was true. But they thought it was true. That's the key. They thought it was true, even though it was a lie. So a lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was a truth. If the resurrection is a lie, they had to know it. 
They had to know it. Therefore, they not only died for a lie, but they knew it was a lie. Find five, six other people in history did the same thing. I can't. You say, but Josh, look. A lot of people have died for a great cause. They really have. A lot of people have died for lousy causes. Some really stupid causes they've died for. But here's the problem. You say, well, Josh, okay, what about the disciples and all? Okay, here's, here's what got me. Yes, a lot of people died for a great cause, but their great cause died on the cross. Are you with me? What they died for? Their great cause died on the cross. He was dead. In, why do you think? They were, they, they were gutted. And they're walking back to their houses with their heads hanging low. We've been deceived. And then Christ appeared to them for 40 days with overwhelming evidence that he was alive. They walked with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They listened to him. They interacted with him for 40 days. Yes, a lot of people have died for a great cause, but their great cause died on the cross. I'll throw a little historical perspective here. The disciples were under the traditional teaching that the Messiah could not die. The Messiah could not die. He was going to be a reigning, living Messiah. He's going to throw the Romans out, conquer death, everything. And you follow through the conversation of the disciples, you'll see this. They didn't, they didn't believe Jesus could die. Even when they strung him up on the cross, they still had that flicker of hope he was going to come down off that cross. And then they thrust a spear into his side, the Romans did, and blood and water came out separated, which is a sign of death. No wonder. They went back to their homes discouraged, defeated. Their great cause, their cause died. They had nothing to live for. Can you imagine? It wouldn't have taken anything less than Jesus appearing to them to convince them that he was alive for 40 days. I struggle with this because Jesus was not a part of my future. I was going into politics. I had my life all lined out. For 25 years, exactly everything I was going to do, become the governor of the state of Michigan and then a U.S. senator and a multi-multi-millionaire. And the more I struggled with the scriptures, I finally just had to stop and say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. But folks, I struggled with that. I remember that night. It was the December the 19th, 8.30 at night, towards the end of my second year in the university. And I was in my dorm room, and I just said right out loud, he is risen. That's when I knew I had a decision to make. I got alone with a friend of mine, made sure nobody else was watching. I was a coward. Plus, I had a reputation to uphold. And I got alone with this friend of mine, and I prayed four things that changed my life. Also, I prayed four things that I'm convinced to this day establish a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, his son.
And the first thing I prayed was, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. As I shared yesterday, that's when I realized if I were the only person alive, boy, this is hard to grasp, Christ still would have died for me. Second, I knew the Bible was true. And I knew there were a lot of things in the Bible I didn't like. For example, every time I said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I didn't like that. I thought I was a pretty nice guy. But I knew the Bible was true. And I knew, I didn't call it sin, but I knew many things in my life were incompatible with the holy, just, righteous nature of God. Now that's sin. But that's how I perceived it first. And so the second thing I did, I said, God, I don't know exactly what it means, but I confess my sins. Forgive me. Third, I knew the Bible was true, and I knew the Bible said, but to as many as received him, that them gave he Christ, Christ gave them, to them that received him, to them gave you the right to become a child of God. And so I said, God, I mean, come on. You have no, I've never been to a Bible study or anything at that time. And what does it mean to receive Christ? So I just did the human way that I knew. I said, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I surrender. I remember saying, no, I surrender the throne of my life to you. And the fourth thing I just prayed was, just, it was, it was, it was really simple. I just said, thank you. That was probably one of the biggest steps of faith I ever took. Even though it was just two words. Whew, because I meant it. Thank you for coming into my life. Nothing happened. I didn't learn how to play a harp. I didn't sprout wings. I thought I was going to chuck my cookies. But in that process, in a matter of a few days, God confirmed in my life that I was born again, that I became a child of God. But to as many as received him, to them be the right to become a child of God. And so folks, if you don't know Christ, check him out. I would encourage you tonight to find a Bible, turn to the Gospel of John that's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth Gospel, but read John 3 three times. That's what I was told to do. And boy, it did have an impact by the second time I read it. So I tell others, read John 3 three times, and before you read it, just pray a very honest prayer. The only kind you should pray anyway because God knows it anyway. Say, God, if you're God and Christ is your son, if what I heard today or tonight was true and you came into my life with that decision and I'm forgiven, give me the conviction of it. And then just simply read John 3, three times. And then I would encourage you to find someone you know who is a follower of Christ. If you're a woman, look for a woman. If you're a man, look for a man. And share with them what you did. And ask them to share with you their story. Their story about coming to Christ. Because I found that starts a person on a tremendous journey of growth. And then find, and here, if you live around here, I always say, find a good church. Boy, am I a believer in the church. One of the I'm on Campus Crusade for Christ staff, and Bill Bright was the founder of it, passed away a number of years ago. But one of the fastest ways to be really chastised or even kicked off staff was for Bill Bright to ever hear you criticizing the church. I have seen him address some mighty important people and dress them right down in front of their, his, his or her peers. Bill Bright would not sit there and ever listen to anyone criticizing the church. 
And I think from Bill Bright and from going through seminary at Talbot is where I learned such a deep admiration and appreciation for the church. If there weren't churches, where could I send all the people I lead to Christ? I can't follow them all up. It'd be impossible. That's why I need good churches. Just for me personally. Now, if you do know Christ, ask yourself, do you know why you believe? Do you know why? Not what you believe, but why you believe it intelligently. Not because my grandmother was a believer and she read the Bible to me. Why do you believe it? Why do you believe in the resurrection? Why do you believe Christ is the Son of God? How in the world can you believe that the Bible is true and accurate and reliable and is God literally speaking to us? How do you know that's true? Because the more you answer that question, why, usually the more faith God gives you to trust him. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, faith cometh with knowledge. But also, if you know Christ personally, give others the opportunity to make that same choice. Share with them. Share with them. And I would encourage you, like so many people do, and I don't say this because God allowed me to write this book, and I'm very grateful for it. I wrote it in 42 hours. Never went to sleep. Dottie was there. We were in Chicago in a condominium. I just said, I'm not going to bed. I'm not going to sleep or anything until I write a book. And 42 hours later, this came off. And the amazing thing is, and this is dumb as an author all, I never read over the manuscript. I just sent it to the publisher. You just don't do that. <laughs> One reason is, I'm not a good writer. I write good stuff, but my format of writing is not good. I need a good editor, and often that's Dottie. I'll stand nose to nose with anyone on content. Most people are a step higher than me on writing ability. But I'm tenacious, adamant, and I attack. So I attack the scripture, I attack truth, and then recorded it. But I would encourage you to get a number of these books. I don't get anything from them. My royalty has been to multi-millions and I've never seen one dollar. It's all given away to reach young people for Christ. So it doesn't matter if I write one book or 154, I think it is, it does not affect my income at all. I'm on staff at Crew, former Campus Crusade for Christ, and I raise my support like everyone else. Bill Bright used to say, Josh, we've given you a raise, and then you know it's coming. Now go out and raise it. <laughs> and Bill was all so pure of heart when he would say that. <laughs> but I believe in that system. I really do. Because my supporters have become some of my closest, dearest friends who impact my life. And it all started by people I didn't, most of my support came from people I didn't even know at that time, but oh, have I gotten to know him since and become family. And I would encourage you to get, come and I pack, pack a six, a book of 30 in another way, but get a pack of six. Pray for six friends you could give this book to and give it to them, ask them to read it and just say, when you get through, I'd like to know what you think of it. That's all, just I'd like to know what you think of it. Oh, I wish I'd kept all the stories that's come back to me. It would be an encyclopedia of unique stories of people coming to Christ just from handing them a book and then simply following through, what did you think of it? And so that's out there, and another one out there is called 77 FAQs about the Bible and time. Your toughest questions answered. I took 300 of the most difficult questions I've ever been asked in universities. I mean, the tough ones. Teamed up with my son, we took 77 of them and documented the answers. And we took the 77 toughest ones and we wrote this book. 
So you can see documented answers to probably some of the toughest questions you'll ever be asked right there. And then the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, I don't know how many pages this is. I've got to find out. Whoa, 800 pages. About 2,000 documentations on the scriptures and the deity of Christ, the resurrection. I wish every family had this copy. I wish every kid that went off to university had a copy of Evans. One thing I hear from professors over the years, we can always tell when somebody gives a speech in speech classes from one of your books. Says, How do you know? It's always documented. <laughs> it's always, one professor says, we get more papers in universities written from your book, Evidence, than any other book apart from the Bible. And I just wish every student had one uh, when they went off to the university. Uh, I used to wonder, with Tom Landry, who became a dear friend, traveled all over the world with me, the former football coach, and man, you could ask him question after question. He could answer it. You went with us to Yeah, you were with us. You and Tom went with me to, uh, to Russia. Yeah. Yeah, and Tom led him to Christ. I mean, it was an incredible time. <laughs> but I said to his wife once, how in the world has Tom been able to answer all these questions? She said, that was easy. I said, what do you mean? Well, years ago, he took your book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, put it on his little uh, table thing next to his bed, and every single night for years, he would open up and read for 15 minutes. I thought, wow, I better read it. <laughs> Folks, thank you for letting me share this tonight. I don't know if I've gone over. Oh, I did, didn't I? No wonder you're scrawling at me. But anyway, <laughs> come on up here and get me out of here. But folks, take to heart what I've shared. God bless. <laughs>